0: Hey, welcome, thanks for tuning in! This is There's Something About Archviz, a podcast where I discuss with experts and industry leaders about the many sides of the piece industry. I'm your host Federico Biancullo, I'm an archviz artist, artist, founder of The Big Picture, blogger and content creator in the field of architectural representation. I'm on a journey to learn more on all things about ArcBiz, art direction, business, technology, you name it, and I would like you to be a part of this journey as well. Through these conversations, my hope is to bring light to not-so-obvious topics connected to our industry, and help you grow as a professional, as an artist, and, why not, as a human being as well. So, please join me! Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode of There's Something About ArcBiz. Hello friends, and welcome to episode 6 of There's Something About Arvis. There's an interesting piece of data saying that podcasts that eat 7 episodes are more likely to keep going. Now I don't know how data-based this affirmation actually is, but I've almost hit that mark and more episodes are already being cooked as we speak, so I'm covered in that area. Anyway, I'm pretty hyped up for today's episode, as this is the second part of my conversation with Mike Golden about running a one-man show in the field of art And if you haven't listened yet to part one, I highly recommend you to catch up before listening to this episode. Last we left off, Mike was talking about the importance of speed in our job. Being fast and efficient are skills that are often overlooked, and going quickly through the tedium and the perfunctory tasks basically means jumping earlier on all those things that really make an image great. Then we moved on discussing some of the skills that Mike had to pick up when fresh starting out as three marks, namely client management and how to approach client relationships in a proper way. Speaking of client relationships, we also talked about the issue of credibility when presenting ourselves to our clients as a solo studio. Being self-aware of capacity and schedule constraints due to being a solo studio, yeah, is crucial, but it's also crucial to remain confident in the quality of our services. And speaking of confidence, we also raised the issue of how artists entrepreneurs can keep their confidence when presenting their products to clients, especially in an industry like ours that is filled with great work. This point led us to an interesting conversation on the differences between how the quality of our work is perceived by artists and how it is perceived by clients. Make sure that you don't miss that part out because it's really, really interesting. This and much more in part two of my conversation with Mike Golden. So, off we go. How does being quick, because you learn to be quick, to produce a decent image in a relatively short amount of time. How does this being quick help in your day-by-day practice? At Drawkey, you do a lot of, you know, one-day challenges, images, you try to be as fast <laughs> as possible. But in your work, how does this help you? Because I understood that working with Thomas Johansson was mostly about processes, about improving your technical aspects and your structure.
1: Speed, I think, is incredibly underrated or not talked about enough within... Our field or creative fields, and I think it, I, I think it's incredibly important to be able to work quickly. Because to work quickly, you must work efficiently, right? There's the the Navy SEAL thing, which is um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I gave a talk uh, at Maddie last year that was titled uh, "Work Fast, Learn Slow," and I think that the idea of of working fast is one clients are getting more and more impatient, right? There's one thing that I've seen over the last 10 years, clients used to want images yesterday. Now they want them a month ago, right? They just, they keep, they're always going to want things as quickly as possible. As a one man show, you need to be efficient, right? Because A, you can't compete with bigger firms if you're not working quickly, but also you still have to make sure your books are right. You still have to potentially find new clients. You still have to write contracts, Schedule projects. You have all of these other things that you need to do, potentially fix your computer, whatever it might be, that is all on your shoulders. You can't spend all of your time only making images. Otherwise, when you're done that image, you're not going to have another project to work on. So there's like the logistical side of faster is always going to be better if you can do it with the same quality. But at the same time, the faster or more efficiently you can work through all of the tedium, right? Like think of any ArcViz product project. Well, you're probably going to have to model a building or import a building and remodel it and fix it and texture it and start doing some investigations into lighting and composition and cameras. And there's all these things that we're going to have to do. The more efficient we are at them, the more creative ideas we can try. So if we get to the point where it's like, okay. The room's kind of modeled, the furniture's kind of in there. The first idea you have for a composition isn't always a bad one, right? Especially as you've been in the, the industry for a while, you kind of get a hunch of, this will likely be the best camera or something like this, depending on the, the room, you get a hunch for that and then you get more efficient in picking the good ideas. But the best idea is probably not the first one, all right? So the faster you got through all of the tedium, importing drawings, checking, modeling them, checking anything you need to check, getting all the stuff set up just so you can hit render that first time and actually look around with some light bouncing around. The faster you can get to that, the more breathing room you give yourself to find the best solution. And I, I used to, whenever I gave talks, make this chart. Uh, And I know this is audio form only. I don't know why I'm lifting my hands to kind of do it. (laughs) But if you look look at, um, you know, like the course of of, we'll stick with images since largely what I do is images of an image, a decent amount of the time to create an an archivist image is that kind of perfunctory, doesn't matter who does it, prep work, right? Importing, modeling, setting things up. The image doesn't get any better or worse in that time, but that needs to be done. And that can take a lot of time, depending on the bit, like, you know, God help you if you get a Revit model, right? Like, that's, a, that's three days of your life gone, just in, in collapsing things.
0: Yeah, you know, for my line of work, Revit models are quite okay, I would say. But what really triggers me are SketchUp models. I get those things all the time. SketchUp, I don't mind because
1: it's easy. It's like, okay, it's not a great model. But, like, import it, you got it, like, what, is a SketchUp 16 or whatever that you can actually export the thing that comes into Max. And bada-bing, bada-boom, you have a simple piece of geometry. Now you just need to fix it up, right? Revit, you get, you know, 80,000 screws. No,
0: I know, I know. I'm familiar with those (laughs) families with thousands of unnecessary details. And I think this goes back to our duty as 3D artists to educate our clients on how to deliver proper project materials, 3D files, drawings, etc., Honestly, when I get SketchUp models, I have some difficulties in that area to the extent that I develop my own way of cleaning up SketchUp files, which, by the way, involves <laughs> having a second passage in Rhino. So I get the SketchUp model, I reimport that in Rhino okay. so I can clean it up and I can split everything according to my own layer structure.
1: Oh, gotcha, got. Gotcha. I remodel like everything that I get, either from drawings or from a model. But I think that that's also largely due to the fact that On the marketing side of things, the model usually hasn't been updated to where the drawings are. Regardless of the model I get, it's not accurate to what I need to make an image of. But there's all that stuff, and that doesn't make the image any better, right? And the more you can compress that, A, the more work you can take on and time is money and blah, 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 blah. There's there's a million business reasons to work fast. But from a creative standpoint, the lighting and composition and post-production part of making an image is my favorite part. I want to spend as much time as possible there. And that's where I'm going to have the biggest impact on the final product that I'm delivering to my clients. And so speed and efficiency is going to determine whether like, yeah, I got I, I had one day I finished modeling it. And then I had like, you know, an afternoon to set up the cameras and press and light it and press render. I mean, that happens, but that's very unsatisfying because it means that I had to rush through my favorite part and arguably the part that brings the most
0: value to my clients. And that's all a function of how quickly you can work, right? Sure. But it's quite encouraging also to see how all the technological development, AI, software, plugins, etc., how all this development is aiming towards taking away all the tedium, all the boring part. And... To be honest, I'm quite happy with that. I don't mind having an AI <laughs> or a plugin modeling buildings or part of a building for me, you know. Um, but it's, anyway, fascinating to see that even though our line of work is quite different, uh, the ways that we try to present our work with all the sketching phase, avoiding the white or clay model and trying to do as much as possible during the first stage, mm-hmm. is quite similar. And talking about similarities, there's something that has bothered me for quite some time lately, that is... The problem of being a solo artist is this one. You have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of resource. And in my opinion, there's a problem. I don't know. Do you think the client can sniff this? They can sniff your capabilities as a solo freelance. Is there a problem of credibility uh, when you present yourself as a solo artist or as a one-man show to your clients?
1: I think there's the potential for that problem. You know, how you present yourself, especially at the beginning of a client relationship, has reverberating effects for the life of that relationship. I mean, there's there's definitely jobs that I've I've not gained or earned purely because I'm a, a one man show, but that has less to do. As far as I can, I've been able to interpret it. It's never eh, we don't trust one person to do this. It's we need 10 images and an animation and it's due in 30 days. I could do the animation or the images and I could probably hit that deadline, but I definitely can't do both. Right. And if that was if you gave me a month of leeway beforehand, well, I can, you know, coordinate with some of my other friends that frequently I'll, I'll, I'll team up for if I know I can't hit a deadline. But if they're talking to me at the beginning of that 30 days, I can't coordinate that. Like that's a day of writing email. Like who would I trust to work on this project? Like that has the skills that I need that, you know, I, I know I can rely on that then also has the availability to spend this whole month right now working on that just the organization alone will probably prevent me from hitting the deadline. Yeah. You know, so uh, there there are certain things that, you know, you have a, a ceiling on what you can do. Uh, whereas if you have a larger team, you probably have people that you can take off a project. You can shift some things around, even if it's just one image, but it's due day after tomorrow. Likely, if you send me that email that night, it being due two days later, there's nothing I can do. I'm I don't have the flexibility in my production schedule because it's booked and it's just me. I can't take somebody else off of it to help that um, bigger firms have have an ability to do. Um, so there's definitely been that. And and I'm not sure if there is a way around that. Um, but as far as the credibility goes from the first email that I write to that first meeting of sitting down and pitching or whatever it might be, I never hide the fact that talking to me is talking to all of three marks. Um, I've never hit that, but I also present that as a, uh, as a benefit to them. And that benefit we kind of alluded to earlier, which is that if you're looking at my work, if you're looking at my portfolio, that work all came through my keyboard. I produced all of that. So if that's what you're looking for, that is what you're going to get. And the larger studios, it depends on the studio and we're not going to get into any names because you know, it's a friendly industry, but you can look at some of their websites alone. And See oh that image is amazing. "Eh, I don't think that guy was working on this one Right because that one's not great and there's a there's a you know a variance in quality and that's on what they choose to put on The website because without getting into any specifics I've seen what they don't put on the website from clients that have come to me to fix things where it's like who produced they produced this That image is terrible, right? and so there's a lot of variance. So there's actually um, a line in my contract that a client put me in that I've just left in, which says that I will do the work. Right. And there's, you know, sub that I there's a couple different people I use for furniture modeling. And, and there's some freelancers that I rely on to get work done in the time that I have to do it. But it says, like, I will not use somebody else to make these images. If you come to me for Work, I will be the one doing it. So you kind
0: of lean on that strength.
1: You're going to get what you expect. And that is not something that all firms can offer or they can offer it, But there are a lot of firms that do not deliver on that. Not to say that it's impossible. There are some firms that do an amazing job of having big teams and being consistently producing great work. But that, I think, as firms get bigger, that becomes more of the exception than the rule.
0: And big is also a relative term in our industry because at 10 very people so. firm, you could already start considering it a big firm somehow. I mean, definitely, like, once you hit 20, you're at, like, big firm You're size. one of the biggest, probably. 20 is quite <laughs> big for our industry.
1: You're very big. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I've, I've never... Part of it might be just how I present myself or how I present our work. Like I I have a tendency towards confidence slash overconfidence, which can be a problem. But it does at very least mean that more often than not, I can present myself and my capabilities confidently, which clients will react to. Uh, in a positive, generally, you know, as long as I'm not being a dick, we'll we'll do it in a positive way. Which is that, like, this guy really seems to know what he's talking about. Seems to be, you know, capable. Seems to have all the answers to the questions we're asking. Let's let's trust him.
0: That's probably what clients are good at sniffing: lack of confidence.
1: Yeah, and the, but the, but then they conflate that, and this is a, I think again one of those business skills that I don't know that you can learn without doing because. My form of presenting confidently is probably different from your form of presenting confidently is different from you know person C's way of, of presenting confidently. There are There are a lot of different actual forms. Some people are very quiet and subdued and soft-spoken. I tend to be a little bit more loud and excitable is I'm sure a surprise to absolutely nobody. And they all have their weaknesses, right? Like my method, when it goes badly, I look like an asshole or egotistical or arrogant, right? And that's something that I need to be actively protective of, of not going into that too confident zone. Right. Because like, yeah. if I get nervous, that's generally like kind of my my fallback and someone who's more soft spoken, if they're getting nervous or things aren't going well, default is to be a little bit quieter, to be a little bit more meek in the conversation. Yes, that's not a weakness, but it can lead people to not have confidence in you in your abilities, even
0: though the two aren't related, but clients definitely see them as related. That goes probably more into the self-development. I don't like the term, but it's more than a business skill, if you think about it. Absolutely. But it's definitely a business skill as well. Talking about skills, being a one man show, it means wearing multiple hats. You know it better than me. We have to try to learn new skills every day. We have to cover different areas of our job. What did you have the most problems in covering in your work? How did you overcome these obstacles or some weaknesses in your uh, business persona, so to call it?
1: Again, this is going to be like probably a, a zero surprise to anybody. Uh, I'm not a particularly patient person. And dealing with clients, there's a certain amount of patience required. Um, when I was at Dbox, let's say, they had project managers. Uh, Nancy, who kind of like helped me apply at the right time was a phenomenally patient phenomenal project manager where if clients sent me emails that made me all hot-headed and mad mm-hmm. I could Nancy would see the email and she would come over She to Mike are you okay how should we <laughs> respond to this and I could vent to her and uh, and go up on, on on why I was upset about even the, the, the they dare ask the question again this is you know a young artist with uh, more ego than uh, was warranted but and then she could sit down and say like okay so let's write that in a way that you're actually allowed to write to a client, not how Mike actually expressed it. And, um, you know, at Thomas Johansson's because I was in house, I wasn't really dealing with clients much directly besides other architects in the firm. And then when I got out on my own, I had no Nancy's to make sure that, uh, you know, I was doing things properly and civilly and client management is tough. And like, you know, the, the talk that you referenced at um, D2 from a couple years ago, that's talking a lot about the systematic parts of process, right? Like how I approach actual meetings and how I approach like here's when I'm going to show you an image and what I'm going to show you and kind of like hard as, as far as concrete parts of the process. There's still all of the how do you actually talk to your clients? What do your emails look like? What's the tone of your quote unquote voice typed in an email? Right. Right. Um, I come off wrong or poorly in that setting, especially at the beginning of my career. I've made so many mistakes. <laughs> we all have. Um, but I, I think it's, it's those soft skills of dealing with people at the end of the day. We could talk about all of the business things I didn't know when I started. There's so many things, but I think that the biggest one was learning how to communicate. I mean, as, as basic as that sounds. Sure,
0: um, I can tell you it's even more difficult if you have to come up on your own with a communication style that works both for you and for your clients, and you haven't spent enough time in a work environment that taught you how to set up a proper communication. And as for me, it doesn't help that I'm kind of a pressure pot when it comes to client relationship, in the sense that if there's too much negative, I can hide so much, yeah. then I explode.
1: Yeah. I know I know that well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and and professionally, that's a terrible way to yeah, do Yeah, I it. know.
0: I know. <laughs> You end up making Uh, very important screw ups before entering a proper mindset, you know?
1: Yeah, there's one like fundamental thing that I think I've I've kind of always had. I think this is like part of how I was raised, which is that whenever things aren't going the way that I want them to be going, whether that's creatively or professionally or interpersonally with clients or whatever it might be, I don't necessarily always see that as some shortcoming of my own. I don't blame myself for that, but I always think of it as something that I could fix and uh one of my favorite podcasts is the knowledge project and the host um shane Parrish, in one of his episodes has this beautiful quote that i'm I'm not going to get word for word i think but i'll get the spirit of it and i can't believe i can't get it word for word but the quote is um it may not be your fault but it's still your responsibility to do something
0: about it so you have a highly internal locus of control do you know the concept of locus of control I think I understand
1: what you're saying but I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're referring to.
0: It's the way that an individual thinks that the events of his life are produced by their behaviors or action or external causes. So if you if you lean on thinking that what happens it's due to your behavior, you have an internal high internal locus of control. I don't know that
1: I fully do. Mm. Cuz like you need to accept that a lot of things are outside of your control. That's with the vast <laughs> the vast majority of things are, right? And the, and even of like Being successful and unsuccessful, if studies are to suggest anything, it's that a lot of the big predictors are not you, Mm -hmm. right? And your abilities or anything else. There's so many external things that, you know, we're pretty much blind to that. I think that there is only like a small amount of things that we can do right. And it's kind of that idea of being lucky to be lucky. You have to be prepared. I don't think that we actually have a ton of control at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that things go well or go badly purely based off of my own like driving my own will. But I do think that if I go into a meeting and to present images, final previews, whatever it might be, and that goes poorly, it could be completely and utterly outside of my control. Who knows what meeting they had just come from, right? Could have had nothing to do with the images. Could have been how I presented them. Could have been the images themselves. There's a million things that it could be. Some of them aren't even within my control. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that I could have done something better to have had that meeting go better than it did. It's a balancing act, right? Of like not taking everything personally and not thinking that you have the answers to everything. But at the same time saying like, but I could have done something better. I could have set the mood at the beginning of that meeting better than I did. Or I could have felt the tension before we even started and spent the beginning of that meeting trying to relieve that tension so that then we couldn't look at the images with a clean eye or I really missed the mark on the images and I could have done better to realize what they were looking for before I
0: made them and showed them to them. So you basically acknowledge that there could be external causes, but then you kind of go back to yourself and think maybe I could have done something to alleviate those factors. Yes. That's internal locus of control. Okay. yeah.
1: But just to reiterate though, you don't have a ton of control. I know that. But the only thing that I can do, I can't affect those things, right? I can't make sure that my meeting always comes first in the day with a client or after a good meeting of theirs. I can't do those things. But what I can do is do better always. I can always improve my contribution to how things go. Does that make sense? Does that? Does of it, course, are,
0: it makes a lot okay. of sense. It resonates a lot actually. Going back to more pleasant things, what do you enjoy <laughs> now? What do you enjoy, actually, of being a solo artist, of being a one-man show?
1: I mean, kind of all of all of the the conflict that we were just talking about. Hmm. I really, really enjoy that when things don't go well, I have the autonomy to try and make them go better in the future. Hmm. So, like, I love that the only person that can tell me my image is bad and have that matter as far as what I produce is my client. I like that autonomy of the creative side of things. Um, I don't like all of the minutia of running a company, but that's you know part of part of what needs to be done. But I like that if a project doesn't go well, I have the option of taking projects that aren't like that in the future if I can if I can see a trend there. But I can also just go back to my drawing board of okay, what can we change that might make it go better in the future here's a new idea, let's let's get rid of another round of review, which seems yeah. to be my kind of default um, <laughs> answer to that. But then how do we do that, right? And, you know, every time I presented that, it comes across as like, here's how I do things, and it's step A, step B, C is done. Uh, but the reality is that every single time I do a new project, especially a, a small ones, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but particularly like the big ones... The ones that take me four or five months to complete by the end of it. I'm like, I should have done this next time, next time we're doing this. And, and so it's this kind of like constantly evolving by small steps. And then you look at the major milestones and it seems like a ton has changed, but it's these, the next project, we're going to, I'm going to tweak how I present this or I'm going to tweak how I do this in
0: little ways each time so you like to think in your process in your business etc not just images. yeah very much so even like onboarding processes you know email templates this kind of stuff that are not really directly image related but more business related or communication related do you like that aspect as well uh, i mean you're talking to a guy
1: whose website has been down for <laughs> just about a year okay yeah uh so i think i think that whatever um I think whatever my answer to that is, it will be overshadowed (laughs) by the clear fact that no, like, yes and no. Like, I do love meeting potential clients and presenting my work to them. That's something that I find changes a lot because I find that um, those initial emails, right? Usually it starts as an email exchange and then historically it's then usually rolled into a meeting either for a specific project or just a general introduction meeting. Now that happens over Zoom, which is not as great, but the implications of of that, you can almost call it a negotiation, even if you're not talking about a specific contract, you're still setting the terms of, you're telling them how you treat your clients and you're also setting the standards as to how you expect
0: to be treated. And you also get clues on how they treat artists and companies. Absolutely.
1: Um, and so there's so much to be learned about the client in that time, there's so much to do as far as, um, you know, there's, there's one client, and I'm, I'm not a client of mine, this was in my Dbox days, um, there was one project that we were working on that had a interior designer for the actual architecture that we were dealing with, because she was also, you know, curating what was going on inside of the renderings. And this designer, when they got on the phone would scream at her assistance while we're on the phone would not even like pay the least amount of respect to the client. They were terrible to work with. Absolutely miserable. Getting on calls or sitting in meetings with them was just like you dreaded it. They were just thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant, which regardless of what I say next, don't be unpleasant, be a nice person. Don't be a dick. Um, but Anytime something needed to change, the client wouldn't even speak with the designer. They would never even consider asking them to change something in their design for the image, not even for the building, just for the image. They would come, they'd be like, well, you guys got to fix it. That's what she wants. That's what they want. You, you need to do it. Uh, and I'm like, they're pricks. Do we not just sit through the same conversation? How do we come out of this having to do all of the work? Uh, and they don't. And I'm like, well, she does a couple of things like, a, she's unpleasant to work with. I don't think that that's going to pay off long run. But the motivation of her unpleasantry, let's call it, mm-hmm. was I am so good at what I do and so professional that how dare you even criticize anything. I she had a ton of confidence, right? Again, not saying that that was good, but I, looking at the way that the client then reacted to that, I'm like, okay, there's something to be said About how your client perceives your expertise. Right. And so I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman. And, you know, one of his, he has three rules for for business do good work, do it on time, and be pleasant to work with. And and basically, you only need two of the three, is is what he says. there's a great talk that he gave for, I think, Stanford. It was a, a, a commencement address.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's absolutely awesome. Neil Gaiman's great. Uh, and I agree with him. I think that you should be kind and you should be a joy to work with. And you want your clients uh, to look forward to seeing you because that excitement is super important, in my opinion, um, especially because you don't want any of these relationships to be one offs. You don't want to do all of that work of establishing a relationship with a client and then have that one project be the only time you work together. And if they don't like you, if they found you unpleasant and, and a hassle to deal with, they're probably not picking up that phone to call you next time they need images or, or video or whatever it might be. Um, so don't do that. But watching the client, just like not dare to question her was kind of, there's a switch in my brain of like how we present ourselves at the beginning of these relationships. Are we professionals that know what we're talking about that do their work professionally? Or are we kind of like, okay, yeah, if you guys want that, we can do that. Or we could do, yeah, whatever you guys want. You know, like, what's the tone of that relationship? Hmm. I think of myself in those settings as I'm an expert, right? Hmm. I've spent more time than any of my clients making images that much I know for a fact, right? As a result of that, if we're talking about what makes a great image and what doesn't, or if we're talking about the way that we should display a project, I'm not going to have a ton of confidence if we're talking about the marketing branding side. That's not where my expertise lies. And if they're telling me that we want to do A, I'm very deferential to those things. But if we start talking about the images that we could use to attain that look, style, branding, voice, or whatever it is, the image side of it, I have a lot of confidence and I speak like I know what I'm talking about because I believe that I do. And clients react to that differently than, oh, we could try that. We could do this. We could do that. Like you want to listen to your clients, but you also want to let them know, in my opinion, that you know more than them when it comes to image making. Depending on where you are in your career, right? Like you need to know what you're doing. You want to be an expert in what you're doing. And you want your clients to see you as an expert. I don't want my clients to think of me as someone who's doing what they ask me to do. In the, like, I don't want to be seen as hands to their project. I want yeah. to be seen as a partner in making that come to life. I want them to trust my opinion. I want my opinion to be worthy of being trusted, but then I want my clients to trust that. That gets started in those first meetings, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And it's important to stress that this relationship building process is very slow and it takes a long, long experience to get it right. But anyway, <laughs> you since you have mentioned confidence, there's now something that I want to ask you about this. It's something that I've been thinking for a while, i come up with my own conclusions, but here's the question. How can I have this huge first meeting confidence when I know that there's people out there doing much better work than mine, and that this client could easily go to one of these people, mm-hmm. which probably also charge much less than me, and still have that first meeting confidence? That's a
1: really interesting question. Because I agree with it entirely. There's the amount of great work being produced within our industry. Great work is the norm now, right? Yeah. There's a lot of work that I see on a daily basis where I look at them like, God damn, I wish I had made that. That's gorgeous. And I think that um that barrier to entry as far as like the quality of work that you need to be able to produce uh keeps getting higher. Whenever I've given talks or whenever I talk about like the business side of ArcViz, doing good work good to great work is like the first step. And that's going to vary. I think it's natural within the artist side of ourselves to look at other people's work and say like, Oh, I'm not that good. And sometimes that's founded and and there's growth and work to be done on your own skill set. But also I think that we look at other people's work and we wouldn't do that because our style is different or our eye or tastes or sensitivities is different. So we would just never produce that other work. But we look at it and we're like, ah. but I wish maybe I wish I did like we get in our own heads. And I think we can be very tough on ourselves in that regard. But as far as like the confidence to talk to your clients personally, I think that the quality of images that I produce is a part of what I'm offering to my clients that makes me valuable to them. But I think it's a smaller part than I'm going to do it in less time for less money. And you're going to get more images out of the whole thing. So those, there's a lot of value to clients in that. And when I start talking to my clients, I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to tell them a couple of things. I'm going to tell them that I'm going to do great work and that I'm going to be the one doing it. I'm going to sell the idea of like, if you hire me, I am the person making them. All the images that you came to me for were made by me. Not some employee I had three years ago. Not some guy who's currently busy on a different project. They're all one and the same. So you're going to get what you're expecting and I'm going to do it with less meetings. You're going to end up with more images than you're actually paying for because of the way that my process works. Uh, and the whole thing is going to be easier than you're used to. It's going to be less work for you and the result is going to be better, right? Like that is the thing that I can offer that most, I'm not going to say most studios or individuals can't, but don't. All right. And then, and there's a certain amount that my expertise My experience, my abilities is very important in making that happen because if I can, if I produce not the right image with only one round of review, that client's going to be very disappointed, right? So my ability to kind of intuit what they're looking for and deliver that without them having to tell me each little thing that they want is super important. So generally speaking, if it's a new client, they've come to me because of a specific project that they saw that they liked. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Uh, if it's a completely new client, like I never worked with them on a different team or whatever else. Um, they saw some project. They really liked it. When they find out that I only do one round of review or whatever, they generally freak out. They don't like they don't know about that. And I say, well, let, let me sit down and walk you through my process and, and explain it to you. And I try as much as I can do that in person and by our initial emails, I'll kind of know which project they were looking at that they like and I'll set up a presentation specifically for them using that project as an example. And I'll say like, here's the way that that project went. Here was the first time they saw this image. Here's the, here's the end result. Here's the way that, you know, like I'll walk them through why I think this is a better process for them. It's gonna spend less time. I mean, think about how expensive those meetings are for, for clients. You generally have, for me on the marketing side, The architect is usually there, a couple people from his staff or at least one person from his staff or Mm -hmm. her staff. Yeah. The developer is there and generally somebody pretty high up that has like a pretty big say in this, you know, six hundred million dollar building that they're building. And then a couple project managers and a couple other people on the staff are usually there that are kind of keeping track of everything. And then the broker is usually there. Right somebody within the brokerage marketing side, and then possibly the graphic designer or brander um, that's doing, there's a ton of people. And all of those people's time is very expensive. That hour long meeting is thousands of dollars of man hours. And as much as we like to think that our clients want to give us revision after revision after revision, they don't. If they could do it with just snapping their fingers and have the images that they wanted to sell their project, that's what they would choose. They don't want to sit there and mark up PDFs and go through endless reviews or anything like that. They have other things to do that are more important than the image.
0: Yeah, I guess in these situations, having multiple stakeholders at the table helps because the architect is probably the one that cares the most about having more reviews while the other people, they just, they want the thing like that, snapping their fingers And they want the image.
1: That's what they want. But left to their own devices, if the image that you're delivering to them is not what they had in mind, is not fulfilling that vision or expectation that they had, then they'll have reviews from now until the cows come home to get that image, right? So your ability to deliver that is a combination of your ability to make the image and to know that that's what they're looking for. That's like kind of soft skills, kind of hard skills, kind of technical very much experience-oriented with dealing with clients and, and knowing the kind of marketplace and expectations. But the image itself, which is, I think, where the initial question came from, as far as the quality of your work, when I'm speaking to clients initially, that's kind of a given. If they came to me, they know what my work looks like. They, if they're talking to me, they like the quality of my work. Maybe not as much as somebody else. Maybe I'm a little bit less expensive. Maybe I'm a little bit more expensive. Right? There's There's going to be things, but If they're talking to me, the quality of my work, and this goes for anybody of any skill level, if they're speaking to you, the quality of your work is not a non-starter, right? Because they already know that. That's the one thing you pretty much know is that they've seen your work and they are happy with those results. Whether or not they're happy at the end of that project, that's up to you, right? Then that's your, here's what I've found. We as ArcViz artists care a lot more about the quality of our image than our clients do. Right. Like we see image from artist A and think, oh, that's pretty great. And then we see image from artist B and we think, oh, wow, she is amazing. Image A is no good anymore. Right. Because the Im- image B, she just she killed it. Look how cool her image is. Right. Why would anyone get an image from image A guy when image B is just waiting to be made for them? Right? I feel like that's how we look at it with arc, as
0: ArchVis artists. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And clients look at it as like, they're both good images. I'm figuring out this slowly, but this, this kind of cap in the quality of the work in the eyes of our clients, It's I don't know if there's a right word to put it that way, but clients are used to a certain degree of quality and yeah. they, they won't see quality the way that we do. For the clients, sometimes it's, that's just enough, you know? I don't know. That's my impression. I think that that's very much true. And like... I think it's the rare client
1: who notices all the quote-unquote special things that you do that you think make your images special. I think it's the rare client that notices all of those little things.
0: There's people for sure, especially in competitions and tenders. I've seen a lot of people that reference, you know, the usual suspects. For a lot of good reasons. For a lot of good reasons. And they reference that and they take that as a, you know, as a standard. Mm -hmm. There's people that do that, but there's not so many as we think. No. It's more us. It's more a thing of the artist. Yeah, so I, I can agree 100%.
1: I think it's, it's this thing where I think I could make worse images and my clients would be just as happy. I wouldn't be right. Like the thing that's pushing me to keep trying to get better every day to try to make better images than I made last time. One is because the bar is kind of generally being raised. You can't just stay at the same plateau forever, obviously. But. It's really because that's what I enjoy. I remember at the very beginning when we were talking about when you finish that image and you're like, I just want to show this to like my buddies because I'm so excited that I made it. Like that feeling, that's the thing that I'm after. That's why I love this industry. That's why I stay in this industry because I want that feeling as often as possible. And that means I need to be by my own standards making a slightly better image each time. That's not for my clients, I don't think. I think we have to be like, realistic that that little thing that made me really excited about an image if it wasn't there the client probably wouldn't notice right it could have just been a technical thing right like I did this in half the time right like I had to scatter a forest and I did it faster than I've done it in the past or I did it better than I did it in the past Um, a lot of those things like the the client has no way of seeing it and if it's just an image quality thing it's probably a minor thing right like at the beginning the 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 steps of improvement are, are are pretty big as you're like first getting into the industry. And then, you know, what I see as a drastic improvement to the quality of my work is in reality, probably a smaller step, a much smaller step. And if the client really wants something that you don't necessarily agree with, we can't be too precious about that for our own, quote unquote, artistic integrity or Whatever it might be because at the end of the day I want my clients to be happy and it's more important that they're happy than I'm happy at the end of the day Because this is a business and I need to have work after this So making sure that we don't confuse Those two things is incredibly important to me Uh, My goal for myself within my within the industry is to continue making better and better work I hope that my clients appreciate that, but I have to be honest with myself and say that that's for me. That's because I enjoy improvement. At the end of the day, my clients, they want the work that's going to work best to sell their projects in whatever capacity I'm producing images for. That's more important than me loving my image professionally.
0: That's a wonderful goal, I think. although. I think that also having that thrill of the client that tells you you've done an an amazing job. It's an incredible job. It's also very valuable for people in the industry because feedback from clients is going to be very useful to fuel your drive. But as you said, we have to be careful and not connect that feedback to the quality of your work. That's the trick.
1: Yeah, I think so. right? Because I I think in my experience, the images that I'm the most excited about are only sometimes the ones that my clients are most excited about. We see what our clients value less based off of what they tell us and more off of how they market the project. So when you look at your client's website, what's the first image that they put up? What's the thumbnail for that project on their website? What's the image that they keep reposting on their Instagram page? Sometimes that's the same one that you thought was the best from that set of images. A lot of times it's not. And I think that there's a lot to be learned by looking at your client's behavior after the project's over. Right? There are projects that I I completed four or five years ago that are still active in sales, especially right now. And I can still look at which images they're still using routinely to promote their project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And I can also look at the projects once they get built. I can look at, and they go and do photography, I can look at the images that they are taking and using from a photographer as to how they're now marketing the building now that it's built. There's a ton of insight to be gleaned about how your clients are thinking about their projects that you can take into the next time you work with them or anybody else.
0: Well, Mike, it's been everything so insightful and I would like you to ask thousands more questions and you've been so generous (laughs) with your time so far. So I think I have to lean towards the end of this conversation. So just one last question for you. If you were to go back at the time when you were getting started at Deepox, what you were to say to the Mike Golden of 10 years ago?
1: I mean, that guy was a really, he was pretty arrogant and pretty hard-headed. So I don't know he would have listened to me. (laughs) (laughs) um that's you know i knew you were going to ask that question and i thought a lot about it and it's one of those questions that you you hear in a lot of interviews and a lot of times if you're not expecting it or the the interviewee is not expecting it they kind of say the first thing that came to their mind there may or may not be any value to it and you move on i've really kind of i spent like literally last night i spent a good like hour as i was laying down to bed thinking about that specific question What would I teach myself if I could? And there's a part of me that's like, I don't know how much I could have taught that, Mike. We kind of alluded to it earlier, which is that there are some things that how to run a meeting, that's different for every person. There's a certain amount of you need to figure out your style that works for you. Uh, But there's also you have some meetings that don't go well and you try and figure out why they didn't go well and what to avoid and what to do. And, and, and like without that, if I just said, Mike, here's the style of how you can run a meeting that, that works for you. I would still have to make mistakes, right? I would still veer from that to actually learn that you have to do it. Um, And I think that there's a lot of things that there's a million things that I would love to go back and tell that Mike. And I think that there are a few things that he would actually listen to. There's two things that I can think of that I would do here's the two things that I came up with is like here's my best answer I would go back to him with two books one that was written 100 years ago uh the art of influencing people which is a terrible name for a great book uh I put off reading that for way way too long because it sounds like such a manipulative crappy self-help book uh it's not if you haven't read it you should totally read it to anyone listening
0: the author was Dale Carnegie or am I mistaking the, yeah, the book? Yes okay yeah
1: who uh, who changed his name to Carnegie uh, just to associate himself with the Carnegie name. like he, he, like there you have to take it with a grain of salt, but I think at the end of the day the, the lesson you learn from that book is that influencing people really comes down to understanding people. It's a book about communication at the end of the day. And I think it puts a lot of onus on you to be an an active listener, to actually pick up and care, like to be, uh, to influence people, you have to actually care about them, which is why the the title I think is so misleading because it's like, how do I get the things that I want? Well, the, the message at the end of the day is care about them, care about the people that you're working for, care about the work you're doing for them and how it influences their business. I wish I had learned that earlier because that goes to if you're working for a firm, that goes to how you treat your coworkers, how you treat um, your bosses, right, and your clients and and everybody. So I wish I, I had been a little bit more forward thinking in how I was dealing with my relationships and keeping my own ego at the time in check. At that point, there was so much I didn't know that I still didn't even know that I didn't know. Right. I still admit to not knowing a lot of things, but I'm more aware of those shortcomings now yeah. than I was. Uh, so the and then the other book is um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a book about negotiation. And again, we think of negotiation as how many dollars are you going to give me to do this thing? Right. Like I feel like that's the standard thought when you think of negotiating. You think of like the nuts and bolts of the business. And I think that negotiating starts in that first email you write of like, oh, thanks for reaching out would love to speak to you about Project B, right? Like negotiating at at its core is again about understanding what the other person, the other entity needs, what they want and what they need and what you want and what you need. And then how to, how to get to a place where you're both getting all of those things. That book is amazing. Uh, Never split the difference. I think it came out like four or five years ago. It's a relatively recent book. I would give, I would give him those two books trusting that, uh, You know, young Mike wouldn't listen to old Mike, but he might listen to the, to the books. And then, um, the third thing, which is something I've only like really figured out for myself in the past year, which is developing a routine of daily practice that I've been able to more or less stick to. Um, I think that if you're trying to get better at anything, Doing a little bit every day is is the way to do that. We don't progress in giant jumps. It's a slow, steady crawl. And it's only recently that I figured out a method that works for me um, that if I could go back and convince young Mike to do things that way, I think I'd be doing even better work now
0: uh, than I am. Right. That's fantastic. But does it involve also your Twitch routine? Is it a way to force yourself to do this kind of exercise
1: yes i i don't think that they're not related i think that like i've really kind of like refined that routine as i started doing live streaming stuff yeah 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 um i try as much as i can to to the goal of live streaming was always to like i don't have a staff i don't get to teach people younger people that are working next to me because i don't have people working next to me and um the goal is that even though i'm not usually doing standard arcviz stuff on, on the live streams. The goal is to at least to answer the questions when they come up and to give something back, hopefully to the community. Right. The nice bonus is that it does make sure that I I do personal work twice a week in some form, fashion or another.
0: It's uh, It's just a great tool. I think we should try to look into this kind of media more often and... Uh, I really like it as a, as a media and what you do as well, because not many people use Twitch for educating. So I really appreciate what you do on the platform, not just on the platform. I'm also a fan of your work. I, I didn't mention that before. <laughs> and of course, all your talks are really super interesting. And that's why I wanted you here.
1: Well, uh, I mean, there are a lot of compliments there. And I think the only way I can answer that is just to say thank you very much. It's, it's very much appreciated. And thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: The pleasure was all mine. And I hope the listeners here are going to enjoy But I'm sure they are going to get a lot of value from this. Mike, thank you so much. Fingers are crossed, you know. Fingers crossed, yeah.
1: But no, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new episode every second week. If you like this episode, help us growing and improving the show by rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Got a question or is there something you'd like me to cover in a future episode? Write me an email at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.